Bibles, you can read along with me. We're going to begin in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, 10 to 13. And uh, let me read it for you. It'll also be up here on our screen. Finally, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. For the next two months at Life Center, we're going to be diving into this subject of spiritual conflict. And we're going to be asking questions like, as you saw on the screen, who is my enemy? Who is not my enemy? What does the Bible say about our spiritual co-creatures, such as angels and demons? What is spiritual authority, and how do I know if I have it? And if I have spiritual authority, how do I exercise it? You know, if Jesus has won the victory, what is the role of evil on earth today? How do we defeat the powers of darkness? How do I engage in spiritual battle? What power do we as believers have over the enemy? And what power does the enemy have in our world today? And of course, in light of all this, what is Jesus calling us to do? You know, there's no question that when we begin a series like Spiritual Conflict, that you're going to get a lot of mixed opinions, ideas, and reactions I think it's important that we need to keep in mind that not all of us in this room have come to the same conclusions on these matters. In fact, we all come from different backgrounds, different faith traditions, cultures, and we have different experiences, which beautifully creates a diversity in thought and belief. And for some, you know, you see that video, you hear the subject, and you're instantly intrigued. You can't wait. You want to know more. You're the type of person that will go to the, the bookstore, and you'll buy books, and you'll read more, and you're interested in the subject. But we also have to understand that there are others here in this room today who, when you hear that, you maybe you find that you're a little bit uncomfortable, maybe a little wary. And when you see some scriptures and how we are going to be interpreting some scriptures, maybe it's going to stretch you in new ways. And from my experience, what I have witnessed is that when it comes to spiritual conflict and all that is associated with it, we as Christians, we tend to gravitate either to one side or the other side. Either we are, we totally overemphasize the spiritual. We see the spiritual in everything. Or we underemphasize it and we see, you know, the spiritual in nothing. We rationalize and sort of explain everything away. We either want to jump all the way into the deep end, you know, regardless of the temperature of the water, or we barely want to dip our toes in the water. You know, I grew up in a home and also in a church that would have no, no, undoubtedly would gravitate towards a side of overemphasizing, which means that. As a result, I've always been very comfortable having conversations with others around things like angels and demons. And plenty of anecdotes I've heard in my time at church. And, and I remember as a, you know, as a teenager in youth group, instead of having like ghost stories around the campfire, we talk about our experiences with the supernatural. And you know, as a preteen, I remember going to the church library. Remember when churches had libraries? And you would ch- I would check these books out by uh, this, you know, and, and it was a, a books about spiritual spiritual warfare and how teenagers were going down to Haiti to fight witch doctors. And I also remember not being able to sleep at night because I was so afraid of what I was reading. Um, 
but I also have had moments where I've discerned, you know, a spiritual heaviness or a darkness. You know, you walk into a room or I've woken up and just sense this darkness and just feel led by the Spirit to pray, you know, speak in tongues, to quote scripture. But for me, this has caused two different reactions. On one hand, I'm very comfortable talking about these things, these topics. But on the other hand, for me, there's a wariness sometimes to dive deeper into these into this subject because I have seen how much it has been abused or misused in certain situations. And thankfully, though, I have been able to, through my life, sort through a lot of these experiences and haven't thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Sadly, not all my peers are the same. So I'm not immune to the reality when I say that there are some who tend to see the spiritual in everything and equate every difficult and unexpected circumstance with the supernatural. I mean, your car, you start your car and it doesn't work in the morning, it's a demon. You know, cast that demon out. Your wife is cranky. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. You didn't get that promotion at work. You know, must be a demon. Cast that demon out. You're Satan is trying to thwart God's plan for your life. But what those who tend to overemphasize the reality of the supernatural often forget is not everything is a battle or conflict. There could be some danger in giving the enemy too much credit, considering the enemy is an already defeated foe. And in Jesus, he has given us the victory and authority in him. But on the other hand, there are some, some Christians, who don't give the enemy enough credit as the current and present ruler of this dark world. There's a naivety to assuming that in Christ's victory means the absence of any sort of spiritual conflict at work in the world. So there's a denial that can take place that almost creates a certain distaste. You hear a Christian talking about the spiritual realm and you want to turn it off and tune it out. And what some claim to be the supernatural you think can be explained or maybe rationalized. And maybe there's even a fear that just by talking about these things, you are welcoming and inviting unwanted activity that can be avoided just by leaving the whole topic alone. But here's what I want to say to us this summer. Whether your experience is to do the one or the other, to gravitate towards this side or that side, whatever you and I believe about the supernatural and its effects on the world should not come from our own personal experiences or the anecdote of another believer. That's not to say, though, that your personal experience or belief is untrue or incorrect. But merely it is emphasizing the responsibility, dare I say, mandate we have for us to base and root our understanding on the supernatural and spiritual conflict solely on Scripture and Scripture alone. Does that mean we can't share stories about our experiences or or beliefs? No, I, I don't think so. But we should be wary when a doctrine or belief on something especially like the supernatural is established on experience alone. God's word must be the authority on all things related to the supernatural, not our thoughts, our feelings, or our experiences. Now, thankfully, God in his word has plenty to say about the spiritual realities that exist all around us. And here's what the Bible says. And the Bible says on this subject is that regardless of where you and I gravitate on this subject, there is absolutely a war taking place. A wrestle with with light and darkness. A battle between good and evil. And when you decide to give your life to Christ, 
You are actively enlisting yourself into a fight, not against flesh and blood, not against your neighbors, not with people who have different political opinions or different perspectives than you, not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities of darkness. Whether you like it, whether you believe it, whether you want it, you are enlisted into God's army. Reminds me of the song that I was taught as a Sunday school kid. You know, I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Anyone remember that song? No, no, just me. <laughs> I am, I am, you are, we are enlisted into God's army. And our ability to fight against, back against the darkness has very little to do with our personality, our gifts, our experiences, and our calling. And it has everything to do with who God is and in light of that, who we are in Christ. Everyone born of the Spirit is instantly immersed into spiritual warfare, which means there's no exemption. There's no neutrality offered. There's no such thing as Switzerland in the cosmic battle between light and darkness. God has intended for you and for me to destroy the things that corrupt or hinder the kingdom of God in our lives. We are meant and designed to push back the powers of darkness, not just by mentally assenting to the the victory at Calvary, but by stepping into and living into that victory. Not letting a defeated enemy kill, steal, and destroy what Christ has already won on your behalf. So what is spiritual conflict? Well, spiritual conflict is a battle, a wrestle, a, a war that is constantly taking place around the two things that God is always doing. Did you know that at all times, God is doing two things throughout all of time, throughout all of history? In this present moment, God is doing two things. And those two things are this. One, he is bringing salvation, meaning he is reconciling the world to himself. And number two, he is bringing freedom. He's bringing the church to wholeness and maturity. He is bringing salvation, and he is bringing freedom. See, Jesus came to bring life and life abundant, but the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy all that God is doing. And where we stand as the church, as Christians, is right in the middle of that conflict. On the very front line of the battlefield stands you and stands me. And so when it comes to the two things that God is always doing, bringing salvation, saving others, and setting others free, there are two things that we, in light of all that, need to be always doing. And if you're the type of person that takes notes, write these down. First, we need to be aware of who God is. But with that, we also need to be aware of who our enemy is. And I have found that in the church here in the West, we have become really good at emphasizing that first, of understanding and of being aware of who God is. But we are that great when it comes to being aware of who our enemy is and what our enemy is doing. Ignorance is not bliss when it comes to spiritual conflicts. We need to be aware. Second, we need to get active when it comes to spiritual conflict. It's not enough just to know that there's a battle taking place. We are called to engage in that battle, to fight in that war. There's no place for passivity in this fight. So I want to unpack those two things a little more this morning. Let's take a closer look. So spiritual conflict begins with an awareness of who God is, but also who our enemy is as well. See, just as we need a revelation of the love and mercy and goodness of our God, we need a revelation of Satan's evil and destructive power at work in this world. It might sound strange to say this. It might sound funny to your ears. But just as God has a plan for your life, as God has a plan for your family, for this church, so too does Satan have a plan for your life. As Satan has a plan for this church. 
for your family, for your children. Paul often talked in his, his books about Satan's schemes and the design that Satan has. Satan is not just somebody who acts on a whim. He is strategic. We can be sure that Satan, who is God's chief enemy, is fully invested in knowing who his enemies are and is continuously arming himself with information to be used against them. Most importantly, the enemy knows who is a threat to his power and who is not a threat. Acts chapter 19, 11 to 15 tells a very interesting story. And I think it's a story that reveals a lot about these designs and schemes of the enemy. Acts chapter 19, 11 begins by saying, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish uh, exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Who are you? See, Satan is aware which one of God's children are exercising their God-given authority and which ones are living with very little conviction of the victory that they have over sin and death. You know, there's times where I wondered, when the enemy looks at the church here in the West, the church here in Canada, the church here in Ottawa, with all of our comforts and our distractions and our consumptions, does the enemy recognize who we are and see us as a threat? If we were to come face to face today, would the enemy say, I recognize Jesus and I know exactly who you are? Or would the enemy say, who are you? We need to have an awareness of who our enemy is and what our enemy is doing. Ignorance is often what leads us to having spiritual blindness. And it's in the darkness that the enemy knows how to do his best work. But in that same breath, in that same breath, having awareness of the enemy does not mean being afraid of the enemy. I really want to make that clear. Just being aware of the enemy's schemes and designs does not mean at all that you need to be afraid. I think a lot of people sometimes become afraid of Satan when they don't need to be or shouldn't be. You know, Dean Sherman, uh, the author, I, I like how he says that fear grows in the absence of knowing who God is. When you know who God is, you know that perfect love casts out all fear. And that God has not given you a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. And so if awareness is what we need to engage in spiritual conflict, how then do we grow in an awareness of who our enemy is? Well, through his word, of course. It's worth saying again that the only reliable source of information that we have concerning our enemy is God's word. And God's word asserts that we are not alone in this universe. I'm not talking about aliens, although that'd be pretty cool if there were aliens, assuming that they were nice aliens and not coming to kill us all. I digress. God's word says that we're not alone in this universe. You know, in addition to us humans who are created in God's image, the biblical authors indicate that there are spiritual realities who also participate in God's created realms. Like us, they too are moral agents, responsible to God to fulfill their divinely given mandates. And not only does scripture assume the existence of these spiritual beings, commonly referred to as angels and demons, the scriptures assert that they play a very important role in the biblical drama. 
You know, when we look back through church history, we see that conversation and relevance of things like angels and demons reach its high point during the Middle Ages, during those medieval times. You know, you, that's why you see a lot of the architecture has those gothic, you know, those gothic figures or those demonic creatures on the architecture. You know, during that time, they believed that spiritual beings were all around them and were very powerful. But as we progressed through history during the Enlightenment, humans began rejecting the idea of spiritual realities beyond human beings. Angels and demons became a sort of embarrassment to Christians who were seeking to articulate their faith in an age of science. It wasn't until the mid to late 20th century where we witnessed an unexpected reemergence of spiritual realities. You know, and today, many of us who have grown up, millennials and maybe younger, uh, we know that there's pop culture all around us that emphasizes the supernatural, uh, things like, you know, Harry Potter or Twilight. Maybe I'm dating myself a little bit. But we live in an age that many have very, re- no, very little religious orientation, but are very invested and believe in the power of supernatural realities, which has led to all sorts of strange and perverted teaching on the supernatural. What does the Bible tell us about these co-creatures of ours? The Bible tells us that these spiritual creatures are God's creatures, which means that they are not equal to God. While they are not material beings like you and I, they have the powers of will and reason and engage in actions that are either right or wrong. Their created purpose is to render service to God, whether bringing praise to him or to minister on his behalf. The Bible suggests that the number of angels that God has created, are very numerous, are very large. And the word angel comes from the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. An angel is God's messenger. And their duties include three things. Number one, they offer praise to God. Isaiah 6, 2-4 gives us an example of this, where it says, Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So they praise God. They give God glory. Secondly, they assist God in governing the world. And third, they stand ready to protect God's earthly people. And when you look at the story of Jesus, you see angels are very particularly active in his story, which makes sense because wherever God is, there you'll find the hosts of heaven, you know, praising and serving him. You know, specifically in Jesus' life, we see angels present at three moments, although I'm sure there are more, but three key moments. First, at his birth. Second, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and third, at his resurrection. We know, too, when we read the book of Revelation, that angels will be also heavily involved when Christ returns and in the events that lead up to that. But on the other hand, there are other co-creatures that we know as demons. You know, in the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, there's very little, actually, the Old Testament has to say about the demonic. But what we do know, what the Old Testament does say, interestingly, is, is point a connection between worshiping false idols and demonic spirits. That there's something about worship, these false idols ushering in spirits that are, that are not of God or do not serve God. And so in the Bible, we don't see this Jewish demonology emerge much until the exile and especially sort of comes on the scene in that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New But when we get to the New Testament, at the heart of the worldview in the New Testament is this concept of two kingdoms or two ages. That there's a conflict that that begins to, to appear between God and his spiritual opponents. 
The New Testament writers, they tell us that demons are fallen angels. 2 Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Demons are spiritual beings who did not fulfill God's intent for them, which means that they participated in sin. And under the direction of their chief, they also seek to advance sin in the world by means of their interaction with humans, working to blind unbelievers to the truth of the gospel, to tempt believers to sin, and to incite persecution of Christians. Demons exert on the earth a detrimental influence, seeking to harm the well-being of God's creation. I think this is really important. This is to be emphasized, to destroy community. Community is such a gift that God gives us, and demons actively target the community of God. It's something to be, to, be, to be destroyed and to be attacked. They compel human agents to injure their natural environment. And of all the demons, the chief demon is, as we know, Satan. And the traditional thought of Satan is that Satan's name is Lucifer. And, and that, that term Lucifer comes from one text in Isaiah, Isaiah 14, 12. And it says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. And that word Lucifer means light bearer. I think that's where we see the, the word O day star, light bearer. But here's the thing, a lot of people don't know this, that careful interpretation of this passage shows us that Isaiah is actually not referring to the chief of demons, Satan, but instead is actually referring to the king of Babylon as Lucifer. But somehow, over time, as these things go, the term Lucifer has been applied to Satan. But Satan is God's chief opponent. You know, the word devil comes from the Greek origins, but the word Satan has Hebrew origins. And Satan literally means this, to accuse, the accuser, to ac- the accuser or adversary. Because while the Holy Spirit of God is a spirit of advocacy, that word parakletos in the Greek is the word ascribed to the Spirit of God. It is a word that means to come alongside, to literally come alongside, to put your arms around another person. That is the Holy Spirit of God. But the unholy spirit of, of Satan is a spirit of accusation, of adversary. And what we need to, uh, need to emphasize is that Satan is not so much a name as it is a title. When you read the Greek, it doesn't say Satan. It says the Satan. It denotes not his name necessarily, but his function. Because it is believed that Satan's God-given role in heaven was the role of a prosecutor. Did you know that? That in heaven, his function was to accuse and bring adversary against God's opponents. And we see this really take, not against God's opponents, but just against people in general. But we see this function of an accuser put forth in the drama of Job. God approaches Satan, asking him to look into the situation of this man named Job. And the accuser returns and suggests, dare I say, accuses Job and his righteousness as being merely superficial. And thus the drama begins. However, somewhere in the story, the accuser in God's court develops a hostile intent. Rather than simply acting as the one who tests the righteous on God's behalf, he becomes the one who maliciously tempts them into sin. The Satan, or the accuser, becomes Satan, the accuser of the saints, the one who is hostile toward humans, and in doing so becomes hostile towards God's intentions as well. 
And remember how I said God's activities are steered in two directions, salvation and freedom? Well, Satan's activities are also steered in two directions, towards the unbeliever and towards the church. Satan's activities blind the eyes of unbelievers to the truth of the gospel, but attacks the church through external pressure, whether that's persecution or internal pressure, division, temptation, seduction. But... And I love that, that when we talk about Satan, that word but gets to be inserted. But the advent of Jesus marked a new stage in the story of the accuser. Luke chapter 10, 17 to 19 says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Satan has fallen from heaven, which means that Satan has lost his function in the court of God. Satan can no longer gain God's hearing. And the intercession of Christ, Hebrews says that God, Jesus intercedes for us on our behalf. He brings intercession to the Father on our behalf. Means that Satan has lost his position and the power of accusation against God's people. Yes, Satan may ro- prowl around this earth like a roaring lion. But even now he is just a defeated foe whose end is sure. What this means for us is that when Christ achieved victory over Satan at Calvary... Giving his life as the true and final sin offering. He also won the war over sin and ultimately the consequence of sin, which is death. And when Christ returns for his church, which he promised he will do, Satan will then be consigned to the lake of fire and will one day eventually be destroyed along with all who rejected God's plan for their life. So why do I say all this? Thank you for allowing me to nerd out there for a few moments. That was fun. Why do I take this time to expound on what the Bible has to say? I say all this because when it comes to spiritual conflict, we are never victims, but always victors. We need not let Satan push us around. We need not let our defeated enemy, who already knows he's defeated, and he knows his fate is sealed, push around and take advantage of us. God has given you the authority to push back against the darkness, to get up when you've been knocked down, to trample over snakes and scorpions, and to stand firm in the power of his word. So engaging in spiritual conflict is not just an awareness of who our enemy is, but being aware that our enemy is completely and utterly defeated. And in Christ, you have been invited to take part and to share in his victory. Because when you are made alive in Christ, his victory is your victory. Come on, that's got to get somebody fired up in this place today. So being aware is A, knowing who God is. B, knowing who our enemy is. And C, knowing who we are in Christ. Romans 8, 37 to 39 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that today? But we can't just believe it. We must walk in it. 
We must step in it. We must live in it. Because when Christians begin walking in their God-given authority, guess what happens? The enemy has no choice but be forced to retreat. The book of James says, resist the devil and he will what? He will what? Does it say he should flee? Does it say he might flee? Does it say he could flee? No, it says when you resist him, he will flee from you. And so more than just knowing who we are in Christ, we need to actively step into the fullness of who we are in Christ by walking in our God-given authority. So how do we become active? That second word, active. How do we become active in the fight? And of course, that is really what this whole summer is about. Stepping in the ring, you know, engaging in this spiritual conflict. But I'll just say this. Paul says in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord by doing what? Putting on the full armor of God. Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. You know, the word put on and take up that I just quoted, it carries a sort of permanence in the original language, meaning that the armor is not designed to be put on and taken off when you need it, when it's convenient, when it's necessary. But no, you put on and you take up the armor of God, and when you do, it is to be worn once and for all. Because our Christian faith is not just a bunch of stuff that we believe. It's not a one-way ticket to heaven when we die. It's not a subjective truth that means that my, this is what my truth is, and they out there are living their truth, and we just leave each other alone because my truth, my truth, and your truth is your truth. No, our Christian faith is a struggle. It's a wrestle, a cosmic fight over all that God is doing. But God has provided you with all that you need to stand firm and to stay strong in the fight. All that you and I need to be active in this fight against the powers and principalities, God has already provided. Look, in your, look what's in your hand. What's in your hand? It is the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Look in your other hand. There's a shield of faith. Your faith is what extinguishes the arrows of the enemy. Around your chest is a breastplate of righteousness, and on your head you wear a helmet of salvation. Around your waist is a a belt of truth, and on your feet is the gospel of peace. And so the question today is not, do you believe there is such a thing as spiritual conflict, but are you ready, and are you willing? Now I just want to invite, is Estrus here? If Estrus, if you are here, would you just come to the keyboard? The greatest scheme the enemy has deployed against this church here in the West is ignorance and apathy. If you want to know what are the schemes of the enemy at this present moment, ignorance and apathy. Because Satan knows this, that blind and sleepy Christians are no threat at all to his dominion. Christians who are sleeping, Christians who are apathetic, Christians who are sleepy pose no threat to his dominion. But on the other hand, Christians who are alert and on guard, knowing that they're knowing who their enemy is, but more importantly, knowing who they are in Christ. What chance does the enemy have at the, at the end of the day? Because all Satan is is a defeated coward. Praying and hoping that the church does not wake up to the truth that all she needs to stand strong and victorious, to walk in authority, has already been given to her. All the church needs to do is to wake up. To wake up and be willing to fight. What is spiritual conflict? 
It is the fight that takes place around the two things that God is always doing, saving others and setting others free. Thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, to delay, disrupt, and destroy the life that Jesus has come to bring, the abundant life. In the middle of that conflict between good and evil, light and darkness, stands the church of Christ. But we are a church filled with the power of Christ's Holy Spirit. And we are the church secure in the victory that Christ has, has won for us over sin and death. So I, th- I think, I forgot, I think it was Saxon who shared this morning. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, who can be against you today? Uh, let me leave you with Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. This is the heritage of all of God's servants. Victory. Victory. Power. Authority. So would you stand to your feet as we pray? And I just want to take this moment right now just to invite, if there's anybody here right now in this room, who has never given their heart to Jesus, who has never prayed the prayer of salvation. You hear all this and and there's something, you know, or someone speaking and inviting you to come, to join in on all that God has done for you and all that God is doing. To give your life to Christ is the greatest act that you will ever do. I think the testimony is all here who are standing here today. It's the greatest thing. If that's you today, I just want to invite you to pray this prayer with me right now. But as well, I also want to pray today, if there's anybody, remember the two things God is doing is salvation, reconciling others to him, but setting people free. And I know that sometimes a lot of Christians, we, we get into this, we get saved, but then we sort of stumble around because we're just not set free from some sins and strongholds in our life. We struggle and we wrestle and yeah, you know, God's, God's given us the victory and one day we'll stand in heaven and we will be completely and 100% set free. But I believe today that there are some things that God wants to set you free from today, now. That everything that he has won has been given to you today. And he wants you to walk in that freedom. And so if that's you today and you recognize, and I don't even need to give the hypotheticals, you know it, God's speaking it to you. The spirit of God is just bringing it to the surface right now. If that's you, just pray with me right now. So let's pray. Father, today, we, we just thank you so much, God, that we can come to your word. We can open up your word and, God, see these amazing things, Lord, that you have done. These incredible things. God, it is so fascinating, Lord, to, to know, Lord, that you created us in your image, God. And even, Lord, that, you know, even the angels that you created and how powerful they are, but even in Christ, our inheritance means even we, God, even the angels are a little lower than, 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 than the, those who are made in your image because we are, our inheritance is secure in Christ. We thank you that you were loved. We thank you today that you paid the ultimate price to secure the victory. You gave your life for us to set us free, to save us, to bring us back to the Father. And God, today, why we come into this series, God, this summer, is Lord, we don't want to take that salvation and freedom for granted. God, we want to take up the authority that you've given us. We want to walk. We don't want to just believe in it. We don't, we don't want to just mentally assent to these things, God. We want to walk and live in it. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you just put in our spirit a boldness and a courage to run, to fight. Lord, God, we don't fight in our own strength. We don't fight in our own power. Like the song sang this morning, we fight on our knees. We fight in prayer. We fight in humility. We fight in service. We fight in love. Jesus, today, we thank you so much today that Satan has fallen like lightning. That he is a defeated foe. Lord, help us to recognize the schemes of the enemy against our lives, against our family, against our children. Lord, against this church. And God, when we recognize it, Lord, I pray that we stand up. We stand strong against the enemy. We push back the darkness and the power of your spirits. Lord, we say today that the enemy has no place here in this church. The enemy has no place in our family. The enemy has no place, Lord, in our marriages, our relationships. The enemy has no place, God, in the community of God, the church. Lord, we have witnessed that one of the most devastating effects of this pandemic is the division between brother and sister and neighbor mother and father and child, God. Heal us, Lord. Let the church be the, a place of refuge, Lord, where relationships remain strong despite differing opinions and perspectives. Help us to heal and overcome. And in healing and overcoming these things, oh God, would you make us stronger, Lord? Stronger in you today. All this is about you, Jesus. And so we recognize the war that's taking place and what we've been called to. But God, none of this would matter if you didn't win the war, Lord. You are victorious, Jesus. You reign and rule. Satan might be the present ruler of darkness, God, but you rule and reign over all. And his fate is sealed. Lord, we know that in the end he will be destroyed. But God, in the end, we will be brought to life. And life eternal, life abundance. So God, today I pray if there's anyone here today who believes in their heart that you are calling them today for the very first time to step into this life, this abundant life that you have promised, this life of victory, this eternal life, Lord. I just pray that they just say yes to you. Just say yes to you today and that they may commit their life to following you. And Lord, for those who are in need of freedom, God, oh Lord, I pray. Oh Lord, we intercede on their behalf, God. God, show them, Lord, how to walk in freedom. Show them how to exercise their God-given authority. Lord, I pray that they would not be discouraged. Lord, we know that the enemy in our, in our struggles, in our defeats, will use it to discourage us, to condemn us. But even in our downfalls, Lord, I pray that the people see the grace of God is there to pick us back up again, to call us back, call us back into the fight. No matter how many times we get beaten down, no matter how many times we get knocked down in Christ, we can get back up. We can get back up. So Lord, guide us this summer. Lord, I also want to pray, Lord, if we're going to begin talking about things like spiritual conflict, I also pray protection over us all this summer. God, I'm not naive enough to think, Lord, that when we don't begin talking about these things and stepping into these things, that there won't be pushback in the spiritual realm. So, Lord, I pray protection over marriages, over families, over this church, God. I just pray that you would protect us. And I pray that we would stay alert and be on guard in prayer and just, and just by walking in the Spirit. So just watch over us, I pray. 
Let us not let our guard down once. So I pray this in our perfect name of Jesus. Everyone says amen. Amen, amen. Thank you.